Welcome to the sermon podcast of Old Bridge Baptist Church. Our mission at OBBC is to make disciples of Christ who connect with God, others, ministry, and the lost. We pray that the following sermon will encourage you in your walk with Christ today. Visit us on the web anytime at obb.church. Well, about five years ago, the fast food chain Burger King made waves in the advertising world when they announced that after 40 years, they were going to change their well-known slogan. Do you know what it is? Have it your way. That's right. Have it your way. Right? I guess the idea of that slogan initially was that if you don't want the pickle on the burger, they're not going to put the pickle on the burger, right? You can have that burger your way. But really, the slogan ended up capturing more than just a good burger experience, I think. I think it really sums up in a memorable way the American experience. Perhaps even the universal human experience. We really do want it our way or, uh, or we walk away. So, Burger King, after 40 years after effectively harnessing this desire and catering to it. After 40 years, they've decided to make the change and they wanted to make it even more personal. They changed their slogan to this, be your way. Be your way, can you believe that? Not quite as memorable, is it? Burger King said in the statement, they said this, the new motto is intended to remind people that they can and should live how they want anytime. Self-expression is most important, and it's our differences that make us individuals. So we can no longer just eat a burger. It's a, it's a statement, right, of individuality. Have it your way. More than that, be your way. You know, eating burgers, according to this slogan, may be a good idea, but the problem is when we take that same spirit and we apply it to our relationship with God. We so often want to have it our way. We want to come to God according to our terms and conditions. By the way, don't you hate all the terms and conditions you have to agree to on the internet all the time? I mean, you're just constantly having to check the box, right? Don't even read them anymore, just agree. Problem is, we we want to write our own terms and conditions with God. But God doesn't accept our terms. We must come to God on his terms. And I I think the story of Cain and Abel illustrates this point so well. Let's look at the first couple verses here. It says, Now Adam knew, which is just another way of saying he laid with his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Let's stop right there for just a minute. Can you imagine this moment? The first human birth. No classes to attend. No mother or grandmother to consult. No medical professionals standing by. Just Adam standing there supporting his wife as she experienced the promised multiplied pangs of childbirth that were promised in the curse. 
And at Cain's birth, Eve shouts out, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. You know, oftentimes in the, in the Old Testament, you'll notice they end up naming someone based on what the mom first says when she sees him. And this is what Eve said. She said, I've gotten a man. Now, the name Cain is really a play on the Hebrew word forgotten or acquired. That word is, is like kana or something like that. So she took that, we, we think she took that word forgotten and she turned it into his name because it's what she said when she first saw him. So his name probably meant something like this. I have gotten him. And it may have just been an, an expression of amazement. Wow, the first birth, a man just popped out of me, right? It could have been that. But a lot of people see in this something more than just amazement. This may have also been an implicit declaration of faith. An implicit declaration of, of faith in the promise that was given in, back in Genesis 3.15 where God said that he was going to put enmity between the seed of, of the woman, the seed of Eve, the, the, the offspring of Eve, and the offspring or seed of the serpent, right? I think Adam and Eve really latched onto that promise. And, and it's interesting here that what Eve says as Cain is born is that I've gotten a man. And why that's interesting is because it's not the word for a baby or a, even a boy. It's I've gotten a man. And there's nowhere else in the Hebrew Bible where a, a baby boy is referred to as a man. And so many people speculate that perhaps this was Eve's declaration of hope that that promised seed had come. She didn't know how long it was going to take. And here, lo and behold, the, she gives birth and here's another Adam, a second Adam, another man. And she got him with the help of the Lord. Perhaps this is the deliverer. Perhaps this is the one who will crush the head of the serpent. Like I said, it's somewhat speculation, I think, to, to think that, but it's possible. And if it was the case, then Eve was in for a shock, wasn't she? At any rate, I think we can say with confidence that Eve viewed Cain as a gift from the Lord. Because she says here, I've gotten him with the help of the Lord. And so that's the firstborn son, Cain. And now we come to second ver the second verse here of the chapter. And it says, and again, she bore his brother Abel. Not as much details about Abel. You ever notice that? How the secondborn doesn't get as many photos, not as much details about them. I'm a secondborn, but I don't hold it. I don't hold a grudge. There's no indication here in the text of how much time elapses in between Cain and Abel. In fact, some people even speculate that Cain and Abel may have been twins. Born just perhaps moments apart. Now, Abel's name literally means vapor or breath. It's kind of a bummer thing for your name to mean, I think. Uh, I think it's indicating a lack of permanence. Um, you may be familiar with Ecclesiastes verse one in, in um, chapter one, verse two. It says this, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. That word vanity in that verse is the, word, is the literal use of the word able. 
So it literally would read, Abel of Abel's, says the preacher. Abel of Abel's, all is Abel's. Because that's what Abel's name means. It means vanity, a vapor, or a breath. And if that's the case, if that's what his name means here, then it's very appropriate because his life was just a breath. It was very short. It was cut short. Or if she had just given birth to twins, maybe Eve was out of breath when he was born. I don't know. But at any rate, we're, we're getting a little bit of a picture of this first family here. Adam and Eve, they now have two sons, Cain and Abel. And the text goes on to tell us here the roles that these two boys played in their family. It says that Abel was a keeper of the sheep. He was a shepherd. And Cain was a worker of the ground. He was the farmer of the family. Now, to a Jewish person reading this, I think... Cain would undoubtedly have been the more prestigious one, right? The firstborn was more prestigious. Firstborn, better name, farmer, better profession than shepherding. But what we're going to find out here is this is going to be the first illustration of a spiritual principle that God's going to illustrate hundreds of times throughout the Bible. That oftentimes the first shall be last and the last shall be first. But a a, a bit of a family portrait here is beginning to emerge. And it doesn't take long for conflict to arise amongst the first family as they are seeking to find their new way here out in the wilderness, outside of the Garden of Eden. Let's look at the next few verses here. It says, In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the first born of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel in his offering, but for Cain in his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. So this starts out well, right? Both brothers are worshiping the Lord. That, that's a good thing, right? Both brothers are bringing the Lord offerings, all well and good. Cain, a a worker of the ground, is bringing to the Lord some of what he has produced in his livelihood. And and Abel, in in a similar way, he watched the sheep. He therefore brought the Lord an offering out of the flocks that he looked after. All seems well at first glance. But a conflict arises. A conflict arises between the first brothers. The first sibling rivalry, if you will. The Lord has regard for Abel's offering and not for Cain's. Causing Cain to become very angry and for his face to fall. What's going on here? What what is this all about? Why would the Lord show favor or regard for Abel's offering but not for Cain's? Is he showing favoritism? Of course not. So the question is, why? Why did the Lord have regard for Abel's offering and not for Cain's? Was it the what of what they brought? Was it what they brought? Or was it how they brought it? Let's talk about that. Was it what they brought or how they brought it? First, let's talk about what they brought. Cain brought crops, probably grain. Abel brought an animal sacrifice from the herd. 
You know, in, in the course of time, God would eventually reveal to his people. He would instruct them through Moses, through the Mosaic law, about how to bring God right sacrifices. But those instructions hadn't come yet. But when they would come, these instructions would include provisions for both making an animal sacrifice and giving a grain offering to the Lord. They were both viable options. In, in other words, Cain's offering wasn't inherently wrong. Right? It wasn't wrong to offer God a grain offering from your crops. We can see that from the rest of the Old Testament. I wish I had time to, to take you to those passages this morning. However, with that said, the Old Testament will eventually also make it clear that the shedding of blood is, is the foundational or primary way to approach God, to receive atonement for sins. So while a grain offering was not wrong, it was not the essential or the primary or foundational way that we, were, that we would eventually be instructed to worship God, to approach God. What we will learn from God's word is that when it comes to a sinful human being approaching a holy God, that our sin offense must be dealt with first. And that's why this uh, offer of the shedding of blood was to be primary. It would atone for the sin of the worshiper. Meanwhile, a grain offering is, is described again and again as more of a secondary free will offering that would be offered by someone after they had already offered a, a sacrifice of blood. Right? So you would approach God, you would offer him a blood sacrifice through an animal and it would cover the sins. And then afterwards, as a free will offering, if you wanted to show the Lord how much you loved him, how grateful you were for him, and how grateful you were for his provision in your life and the abundance that he had given you, you could offer him a grain offering on top of that. But the grain offering was never presented, it was never, was never uh, described as a way to cover or atone for sin. Hebrews 9.22 would say it this way, that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Now, we know that animal sacrifice never actually took away the sins of the worshiper, right? The, the blood of bulls and goats never really took away uh, the sins. It never truly atoned. But it was effective because when a, a worshiper would, would sacrifice an animal in obedience to God, it was a way of pointing forward to the coming of Christ, whose shed blood would actually atone for our sins. And so these are enduring spiritual principles in the worship of God. Now, I can't prove it beyond a shadow of a doubt, but I think Cain probably knew that he was to bring a blood sacrifice first. Can't prove it, but I think Cain probably knew what he was supposed to do. After all, hadn't this lesson already been taught to Adam and Eve in the garden. You remember what happened that first day when they fell in the garden and they were hiding from God? God calls them out and he confronts them with their sin and then he pronounces the curse. 
And then immediately following the curse, Adam names his wife Eve in hope and faith. And then the next thing that God does is he sacrifices two animals, two innocent animals, instead of them. There was a death that day, but it was not Adam and Eve. It was two innocent animals who shed their blood instead of them. And then God took those skins of that animal and he clothed them with that. And so I think the lesson was embedded in there. I don't know if it was actually taught in there. But I think surely God would have taught them this most fundamental of spiritual principles in worship. Or perhaps this was the opportunity where God wanted to teach them what was appropriate and what was not appropriate. However, I I really think that if we look at Abel's offering, we will see that that God most surely must have already instructed them. Because look at this. The text says that Abel brought not just any part of his flock, but he brought God his firstborn. He brought God his first and his best. Just like the Old Testament would go on to instruct God's people to do. And it tells us that Abel brought to God the fat portions. Now, we hear that and we think, oh, you can have the fat portions, right? That's not the part I want. But they regarded the the fat portions to be the choice portions. And so this was Abel bringing God his first and his best and even bringing the, the fat portions, the way the Mosaic law would go on to do, this is exactly how God would later instruct the Israelites to offer a sin offering to him. So I think God had instructed them. And I think Cain should have known what to do. By contrast, not only did Cain bring a grain offering instead of shedding blood, but there's no mention in the text that Cain brought his best. Right? So it it, it mentions explicitly here that Abel brought his firstborn. And it seems to make sense that if you were going to, uh, you know, equally describe Cain's offering, if he brought his best, you would have described him as bringing his first fruits, right? The, the very first produce of his crops. But I think what we see here is that what Cain brought was shabby. By comparison, it was his leftovers. I think Cain rebelliously, pridefully, decided to approach God in his way. On his terms. Cain wanted to have it his way. Sinful human nature wants to approach God on our terms. And then when God doesn't approve of it, we get angry at him, right? So we, we say, hey, God, I think this is the way, this is what I should give you. This should please you. This is my best. But it's not what God has asked us to do. It's not the, the way in which God says, come unto me. And then when God rejects it, then we, we hold it against him. God has told us how we are to approach him. Acts 4.12 says it this way, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus is the only way. 
Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father except through me. He is the only way. But people re- resent this idea. They reject it. It's, it's extremely offensive. I mean, it's easy for me to say this in church, right, where you all largely agree with me on this, this fact. But can you imagine going out and saying this out in a public place somewhere? Jesus is the only way! Right? Imagine, not only would you be potentially ridiculed, but you would be hated for that. What do you mean that's the only way? Right? We, we think we can offer God a, an offering of the fruits of our labors, whether it be good works or our money or our service to others. And we think we can do that without first dealing with the offense of our sin. But if, if that's the case, if you are looking to please God with a sacrifice or an offering of your own making, then you may be in for a similar shock as, as Cain. God may disregard your offering to him. Now, we've talked about what Cain and Abel brought, kind of compared and contrasted those things. But now let's go even deeper and let's talk about how they brought it. I I think most importantly is not what they brought, but it's how they brought it. If I could state it simply, Abel's offering was offered in faith and Cain's was not. It's the presence or the lack of faith that is the root issue here. It's the lack of faith in Cain's offering that caused God to disregard him and what he offered. Hebrews 11.6 says it plainly, without faith it is impossible to please God. Abel's offering was motivated by faith. That's what Hebrews 11.4 tells us. It says, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. It was Abel's faith that motivated him to prepare the offering that he prepared. In other words, it was his faith that impacted what he brought. And I think what what we see oftentimes is that how something is offered impacts what is brought. So a heart that is lacking in faith almost always leads to a disregard for the offense of one's sin before God, a shabby offering of leftovers, or else a prideful, self-promoting form of worship. R.C. Sproul said once in his book entitled, How Then Shall We Worship? Arrogant worship is an oxymoron. It's a contradiction of terms. But by contrast, approaching God in faith leads to a humble acknowledgement of sin and its penalty. It leads to an approach to God on his terms, not on our terms. In other words, it, it produces humility. Approaching God in faith leads to a grateful acceptance of his provision of forgiveness through his way. And, and then, once that 
forgiveness is received his way, there is then an opportunity to genuinely express thanksgiving, to genuinely offer God our first and our best as cheerful givers, as Paul would later say. Cain's reaction to God's lack of regard for his offering, I think, reveals what was in his heart to begin with. The text says here that, that Cain was very angry and his face fell. You know, Cain could have gone to his brother Abel after this happened and said, hey, bro, help me. Right? You seem to have figured this out, and I don't. Right? Can you help me get it right next time? Or better yet, it seems Cain had access to God directly. He could have gone to God and responded humbly to him and said, Oh Lord, I'm sorry you didn't regard this offering. Why not? Please, teach me how I can do better next time, right? How can I make this right? One of my favorite psalms is Psalm 25, where the psalmist is going through some tribulation in his life and he suspects that it might be because of some sin in his life. And he cries out to God. He says, God, make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. The psalmist knows that God is a good God who who is eager to instruct those of us who are are sinful yet humble and want to learn. He, He goes on to say, good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. Cain reacts exactly opposite of what the psalmist just said. He reacts in anger and he's sullen and he's hard-hearted and he's unteachable. And yet God in his mercy and grace is moved to warn Cain. He says to him, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. In other words, Cain, don't get angry. Just do what's right. Right? Just make it right. What God was asking Cain to do wasn't mysterious or or too difficult or unknowable. He knew or he could at least find out what it was that he was to do. But what was required of Cain in this moment was humility and repentance over what he had done. God looked into Cain's heart and he saw there in its seed form murder. He saw the anger in Cain and knew that in its that it was the, the seed form of, of the act that would that Cain would eventually commit in the very next verse. He warned Cain that it was as if sin was crouching right outside his door waiting to pounce on him. You know, if you drive down my street over here at the parsonage, you see a thug crouching outside my door, I want you to call me or text me, right? And warn me. So I don't walk out into that thing, man. Or better yet, scratch that, call 911 first. And then call me. Right? It's only gracious to warn someone of, of, of seeing a danger crouching and waiting to pounce on you. And that's what God does. And God was uniquely able to do this because he was able to look into Cain's heart. And 
I, I read one commentator this week that said it this way, that the sin at the door was Cain's own sin. The beast was within him. And its interior growth cycle would do him in. You know, James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15 talks about sin having this, this interior growth cycle, almost like a pregnancy, right? You begins with our own sinful desires. We're, we are lured and enticed by those desires. And then this, those desires, when they are conceived, they give birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Right? God's trying to nip this in the bud before it, it goes through that cycle. But unfortunately, Cain didn't heed God's kind warning. God, God's warning fell on deaf spiritual ears in, in Cain's faithless heart. And so Cain, in a sense, walked out the door and got mugged. He walked right into the trap. It's interesting that Cain was jealous for the Lord's approval, but instead of joining his brother and doing what was right and gaining the Lord's approval his way, Cain ignores the Lord's warning and instead hatches a plot to remove the competition. So he looks at this situation and instead of listening to what God says, he looks out and he says, it's my brother's fault, right? It's not my fault. It's always someone else's fault. My brother is the problem. And so sadly, in, in verse 8, we read of the first murder. It says, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and he killed him. Cain, I think, in a sense, speaking, in speaking with his brother, walked with him out into a field in a friendly manner. He kind of lured him out there. And, you know, this isn't something you would do near your home where other people would hear. No, you, you go out into the fields in hopes that no one will hear the, the cry of Abel's voice, right? He's hoping that the voice of Abel is not heard. And it's there, out in the field, he commits this premeditated murder of his own brother. So the Lord, not surprised by this, comes back to Cain and it says, Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? And he said, I do not know, and am I my, my brother's keeper? Am I my brother's keeper? Notice that when Cain is confronted he doesn't blame shift like his parents so much. He tells a bold-faced lie. Where's your brother? I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And, and what a loveless expression from a, a dead heart. You know, love should make us our brother's keeper. Right? We, that, that's like one of the number one principles of what love is, is that we... We think not of ourselves, but we, we do think of our brother. We do think of our neighbor first. But there was no love left in Cain's heart for his brother. It goes on to say in verse 10 that the Lord said to, to Cain, not fooled by this at all, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Cain thought that by taking his brother out into the field, away from the ears of everyone, that no one would know. And apparently, 
he thought that not even God would know. It's interesting that Scripture never, reco- never records a single spoken word of Abel. We don't have a single spoken word that Abel ever spoke. And yet here God describes Abel's blood as if it is crying out from the ground to God. You know, I I firmly believe that the, the best commentary on Scripture is Scripture itself. And if you look at all the different ways that Scripture speaks of Abel in particular, moving forward, You'll, you'll notice that it, it speaks of him in two different ways. And ironically, this, this man who never has a, a single word that he ever spoke recorded in Scripture, he's always spoken of as speaking. It's really ironic. First, in, in Abel's life, we see that Abel's example of faith speaks today. I already read this to you once, but it's such a key verse for understanding the story of Cain and Abel. It says, "By, By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Right? So in his life, we are to see, it's as if... Uh, Abel is still speaking out a wonderful testimony of faith. Better than any spoken word, it's, it's the spoken word of his, his life's testimony of faith and, and what he offered to God. And so we, you know, pastors and teachers, in following this cue from 11, Hebrews 11, verse 4, we exhort you, like Abel, to walk by faith, Right? To, to do it God's way. And to do it God's way, even if it contradicts your way. Abel is held up, not, not just here, but in other places in the New Testament, as the first in a long line of faithful witnesses who had faith, even if it put them in danger. Who had faith, even if they never received what it was that they thought that they would receive in this life. And so, in, in interpreting this story of Cain and Abel, we can look at this and we can look at the life of Abel and we can, we can be inspired by his faith and we can um, pray to the Lord, Lord, help me to walk by faith the way Abel walked by faith, right? And negatively to say, man, I do not want to be like Cain. I don't want to be hard-hearted like Cain. I don't want to follow his example. I want to be teachable. I want to be humble. I want to come to the Lord his way. And, and, and this is the way I've been teaching this story all the way through up until this point. But the scriptures speak of the story of Cain and Abel in one other way. And it talks about Abel speaking after his death in in one other way, and that is in, in his death. In his death, Abel's innocent blood points us to Christ. So in, in this way of looking at this story, we no longer see ourselves as Abel. Rather, we are to see Christ in Abel and in his innocent blood that was shed. And if you can accept it, we are like Cain in that 
Our sin is responsible for the innocent death of Jesus Christ. Right, we, in these stories, we tend to gravitate and we say, oh, I'm, I'm, like, I'm like Abel and that person over there is like Cain, right? No, I want you to challenge you to think a little bit differently for a moment. Think of yourself like Cain and your sin. Maybe you've never committed the sin of murder, but your sin is responsible for the death of the Son of God. It was, it was my sin that held him there. We sing that. And so, when we come here and we, we read of the blood of Abel crying out from the ground, what is it crying against Cain? But judgment, condemnation, guilty. It cries out from the ground against Cain's like us. Because we have shed the innocent blood of, of the Lord Jesus Christ, of God's Son, we should be having, Jesus' blood should be crying out from the ground over us, guilty. But the wonder of wonders is that by the providence of God, Jesus' word, Jesus' blood speaks a better word over us than the shed blood of Abel. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 4 says, says this explicitly, that the blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And that is because God's word tells us that the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from sin. Instead of pronouncing over us a word of judgment and condemnation, the blood of Jesus pronounces over us a word of forgiveness, a word of cleansing, a word of purity. As the old hymn that we're about to sing goes, can ask the question, what can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is that flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Don't insist on, on having it your way. Rely solely on his way. The shed innocent blood of Jesus that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel by faith. His blood is what can save you and cleanse you from your sins. And it's his blood, in his blood, in which you will stand to the end. Let's pray.